from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I am Martine Powers. It's Monday, February 10th. Today, what to expect from the New Hampshire primary, what the Secret Service pays to Trump's hotels, and the symbolism of two-in-one shampoo. So coming out of the Iowa caucuses, what is the state of the Democratic primary right now? Well, the Iowa Democratic Party announced that Pete Buttigieg would receive the most number of delegates for the National Presidential Nominating Convention. By the time it's all said and done, Iowa, you have shocked the nation. And so Buttigieg is interpreting that as a win. Eugene Scott covers politics for the fix. By all indications, we are going on to New Hampshire victorious. The person coming in second so far is Senator Bernie Sanders, whose campaign appears to be contesting this finish and believes they will get one more delegate than they currently have. Mayor Pete's been declaring a win for days now. Why should people believe your victory speech over his? Because I got 6,000 more votes. One narrative coming out of the Sanders camp is that he won the popular vote. And from where I come, when you get 6,000 more votes, that's generally regarded to be the winner. There's not really a popular vote in caucuses. It's kind of the whole point is that it works differently than just a popular vote. Absolutely. But it is a message that is working for him with his base. And he's taking that message with him to New Hampshire, hoping it will lead to a much more clearly defined victory. And it feels like this somewhat small conflict between the Sanders camp and the Buttigieg camp coming out of the Iowa caucuses and this question of, like, well, who actually won the most delegates? It's kind of laid bare a lot of other brewing tensions within the Democratic Party as the primaries start to heat up. Absolutely. One thing we saw change after Iowa is the candidates becoming more aggressive and direct in their criticism of one another. Bernie's labeled himself, not me, a democratic socialist. I think that's the label that the president's going to lay on everyone running with Bernie if he's a nominee. The Friday debate in New Hampshire was probably one of the most spirited. We have a newcomer in the White House, and look where it got us. I think having some experience is a good thing. From Amy Klobuchar aggressively attacking Pete Buttigieg. And I figure, Pete, uh, that 59, my age, is the new 38. To Joe Biden releasing ads diminishing the the accomplishments of Buttigieg as a small-town mayor compared to him, a former vice president and lawmaker. Joe Biden helped lead the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which gave health care to 20 million people. And when parkgoers called on Pete Buttigieg, he installed decorative lights under bridges. I saw something on Twitter acknowledging that multiple Democratic candidates were self-identifying as the unity candidate. The way you bring people together is by presenting an agenda that works for the working people of this country, not for the billionaire class. Uh, We need that kind of unification when our nominee is dividing people with a politics that says, if you don't go all the way to the edge, it doesn't count. And someone said, Democratic candidates are divided on who is the unity candidate. (laughs) And that 
pretty much sums it up right now. There's a lot of disagreement on the left about who is best positioned to lead the party forward, but also about whether or not the way the process is currently working is the best way to respond to the realities of the the party, the base, and their respective identities. Prior to Iowa, there was already debate about whether Iowa should be going first because of its relative lack of diversity compared to not just the nation, but especially Democratic voters. I was in Iowa. There are more people of color in Iowa than I think people realize, but it's still an overwhelmingly white state. And so when you had some technological issues related to an app, some perhaps miscounting related to precincts and collecting information with these new rules and policies regarding how the caucus was supposed to work. I think that just amplified people's anxieties about whether Iowa was the best place to help voters decide who they wanted to lead the Democratic Party moving forward. And what does that mean for the New Hampshire primary on Tuesday? Like, are people looking to New Hampshire as, well, Iowa was completely messed up and we can't really glean anything of significance from that, and New Hampshire is really the state that we need to be looking at? Or is the sense that, similar to Iowa, New Hampshire is maybe not the best stand-in for the state of Democratic voters and that perhaps the results from this should not hold the significance that some people want it to hold? Well, it depends on which campaign you're talking about. Iowa, by no means, was meaningless. We did get some messages from Iowa. The fact that Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg emerged at the top gave us an idea about who some voters believe should be the best candidate for their respective wings of the party. So Pete Buttigieg won in quite a few counties that had voted for Obama in 08 and 12, but switched to Trump in 2016 giving the impression that their voters were willing to back a more moderate candidate opposed to someone as revolutionary as Sanders or Warren. And when having to choose between moderate candidates, they went for the the newer, fresher, younger face opposed to backing former Vice President Joe Biden or Senator Amy Klobuchar. And in addition to telling us that they wanted a you know younger moderate, it also communicated that perhaps Buttigieg's identity as an openly gay man was not as problematic for some rural Midwestern voters as some people thought could be. And I think one thing that is notable after Iowa is that even though everyone pretty much agrees that it is a state that is not representative of the country, still people are looking at the results and looking at the fact that, you know, a candidate like Elizabeth Warren came in a somewhat distant third and saying, well, maybe this is like the end of the Warren campaign. It's not really clear right now what Elizabeth Warren's path to victory is or even to, you know, a second place finish. Questions about electability are resurfacing. Obviously, one of the big debates has been about whether or not a woman can win the nomination again after Clinton did in this post-Trump era But I don't know that that is the main reason that she is not doing as well with voters. There have been multiple polls from voters on the left saying that, of course, a woman can win. But when they see the candidates who have the most progressive agendas, Bernie Sanders just has the support and perhaps in part due to, you know, his previous run that 
Warren just can't compete with right now. And it's not expected to change significantly in New Hampshire. And after that, it's not really clear what she would be able to do to change that narrative. Well, when it comes specifically to New Hampshire, what are some of the factors there that candidates are having to consider that could potentially make it different from the outcomes we saw in Iowa? New Hampshire does have more independent and therefore undecided voters right now that could go in either direction. I saw some recent polling suggesting that Klobuchar was competing for third in the polls, which is very interesting because of how relatively poorly she did in Iowa. There's, you know, less of a conservative Christian segment of the party that candidates do not have to appeal to as much as they did in Iowa. That may work in favor of someone like Bernie Sanders, who has openly communicated that he's not a part of an organized religion and therefore does not want faith to have as much of an influence in policymaking perhaps as, you know, the right or even some more moderate Democratic candidates. There are small towns, obviously, in Iowa, but also in New Hampshire, which is forcing some candidates to talk about their vision for small town America and has put Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg recently in some type of open debate about whether or not having leadership in a small town prepares you to be a global leader. And and is your sense that what happens out of New Hampshire will give a significant amount of momentum to the candidate that either comes in first or the first and second candidates? Or a week from now, will we still be in a situation where there are four or five candidates that are still all considered contenders? Depending on the outcome of New Hampshire, And if it's very similar to Iowa, and it's looking like it could be, it will certainly give momentum to the Buttigieg campaign in ways that it didn't have before Iowa. And while nothing is definitive, especially before Nevada and South Carolina, it definitely quiets the conversation about whether this millennial mayor whose leadership is limited to a small town can gain traction because the results will prove otherwise. Perhaps more importantly than gaining momentum, one of the big narratives that will come out of this contest if, you know, Joe Biden does not do very well or Elizabeth Warren does not do very well is how viable will their campaigns remain moving forward because you have about two weeks of conversation on network news and in the papers about this candidate having not won at least two contests. Eugene Scott covers politics for The Fix. One of the things that people always ask me, readers always ask me, is how much money are taxpayers paying him? How much money is he getting from taxpayers? David Farenthold covers Trump's family businesses for The Post. And he's been trying to find out how much money is being paid by the Secret Service to the president's private businesses. 
To me, really, the inspiration was what happened with Doral last year when President Trump tried to award the G7 summit to himself and give himself this giant contract. That only lasted a few days before he had to back off. But we looked at that and said, wow, if he was willing to do that and funnel that much government money to himself, what's he been doing all along when we haven't been looking? And so we started looking at the Secret Service, the Secret Service documents that had been released. There weren't a lot of them, and the ones that were out there weren't that clear about what actually was being charged. We tried to sort of assemble what was known and understand what he had charged the Secret Service for his own travel. So how much is the government paying to Trump's properties to have Secret Service there? We'll start with Mar-a-Lago. Trump goes there almost every weekend in the winter. The charges we saw in 2017 were that he was charging the Secret Service $650 per room per night at Mar-a-Lago. And frequently in these trips, the Secret Service would rent two or three rooms for three or four nights each. So that's a lot of money if if you add it up every weekend. In 2018, they lowered the price slightly to $396 a night per room. But the Secret Service was also renting a lot more rooms than they often would stay during the week. If Trump would come on the weekends, they would just stay all week long and pay even when Trump wasn't there. And when you think about the context of how much time President Trump spends at his properties, which we've tabulated something around a third of his presidency spent at these places, that turns out to be a lot of money when you put all these rooms and and the cottage and all these different expenditures together. That's right. So what we have is records only for the first, uh, and I'm not even sure it's a comprehensive set of records, but the records we have only cover Inauguration Day to April 2018, so about 15 months. In that time frame, we can see $471,000 of payments just from the Secret Service to Trump's business. We don't know what all those payments were for, but we know it's at least that amount. And how does this compare with how President Trump has talked in the past about how much the Secret Service was going to be charged? Eric Trump, who is the president's son, runs the business day to day, was really clear last year in an interview about what the Trump organization charges the government. He said, anytime the government comes and, you know, if, if my father travels, people, they stay at our properties for free, meaning like, you know, cost for housekeeping effectively because you actually have to legally charge government something. Um, so everywhere that, that he goes, if he stays at one of his places, the government actually spends, meaning it, it saves a fortune, because if they were to go to a hotel across the street, they'd be charging 500 bucks a night, whereas, you know, we charge them like, you know, 50 bucks. That's been their line all along. Is $650 per night the, the cost of <laughs> housekeeping? So we tried to run the numbers on that. We know what Mar-a-Lago pays its housekeepers, $11.13 an hour. If you take that rate and assume that $650 that Eric Trump is telling the truth and $650 is truly the cost of housekeeping, that means it takes 58 people to clean one room. The normal cost of housekeeping at a big luxury hotel is under $100. So the idea that they're $650 or even $400 is the cost of housekeeping seems a little ridiculous. Of course, we've asked the Trump organization, okay, prove it, prove it to us. Tell us about your costs. How did you get to these numbers? And they haven't. And why are they charging so much money? I mean, isn't there an argument that they should be required to give over these hotel rooms to the Secret Service for free? One thing that surprised me is there's not really a law here. I mean, there's we could talk in a second about the moral requirements here. Um, But the law is if this was say this was the undersecretary of agriculture and somebody who was in the federal bureaucracy and that person said, "Okay, underlings, we're all going to my hotel. You're going to pay six hundred fifty dollars a night and the taxpayers are going to pay me for it. That person will be fired. That's against the rules. 
but the president is exempt from those conflict of interest rules. And the idea being that the undersecretary of agriculture doesn't face the voters, but the president does. And so the voters are the check on the president's conflicts of interest. The problem is that if you don't know about those conflicts of interest, the voters can't act on them. And the all the ways in which these transactions were supposed to come to light, they didn't. Uh, they don't show up in any sort of public databases that might have let the public know this was happening. And was there supposed to be a mechanism for making it public how much President Trump and his company is earning off of his own presidential stays at his own hotels? Yeah, there's a number of ways. The federal government has something called USAspending.gov. It's a database, a huge database of federal spending. Everything the federal government spends money on is supposed to be listed there if it's over $10,000, except for payments to Trump. The payments to Trump over $10,000 don't show up in there. And for comparison, Joe Biden, former Vice President Joe Biden, he was the only other person to do this in the modern era. He rented the Secret Service a cottage at his place in Delaware for $2,200 a month. That was listed in these public databases. You could see that. You could write about it. You could call Joe Biden up and ask him why. Trump purchases aren't in there. So that's one way that they could be transparent about it. We could know about it, but we don't. The other one is Congress. So the Secret Service is required to make a report to Congress every six months on what it pays to protect presidential properties. So that includes everything from Jimmy Carter's house to Don Jr.'s hunting cabin to Eric Trump's weekend home. And those reports are supposed to be produced semi-annually, but they weren't. From 2016 to 2019, they produced no reports like that. Then after the Government Accountability Office called the Secret Service out for not producing these reports, they started producing them again, but the lines for Bedminster and Mar-a-Lago are blank. So even though we spend all this money on Bedminster and Mar-a-Lago, they leave those lines blank, even while they list spending on Don Jr.'s hunting cabin. And I, I think the logic is, they wouldn't answer us directly, but I think the logic is, well, that law only requires us to report on the costs of permanent changes at Bedminster and Mar-a-Lago, and nothing we've done there is is permanent. It's all temporary. What do you think is the argument for why people should care about the fact that President Trump is essentially making money from his businesses and hotels when he chooses to go on vacation or chooses to conduct business from one of his properties? Uh, This is your money. This is my money. This is the taxpayer's money. And it's being used in secret uh, without the, the public knowing about it. It's being funneled into the pocket of the president personally. So this is a guy who got elected saying he was a billionaire, whose son said that his president, his business would not seek to profit off the presidency, who is in secret uh, using the presidency to pay money directly to himself. So I feel like taxpayers have known a lot about Donald Trump. We've learned a lot about him over the years, but this is one of the few things we didn't know. Because his administration and his organization had said something that wasn't true. They'd said that they weren't profiting when they are. I think that's really important to understand. This is a guy who has, you know, in in sort of a hidden business relationship with his own government, where he's the buyer and he's the seller, but we pay. And to understand the scope of that and to understand how he's exploited that situation when nobody was looking, I think is a good judge of his character and also a good judge of how he's used the presidency. David Farenthold covers Trump's family businesses for The Post. The interview with Eric Trump was conducted last October by Yahoo Finance. And now, one more thing about the internet joke that is two-in-one shampoo. We're talking about men's hair care products that combine shampoo and conditioner and maybe even body wash into one bottle. 
it's become kind of a stand-in for men's apathy toward grooming. But Teddy Aminabar says that two-in-one shampoo might not deserve its bad rap. I do use two-in-one shampoo. I like the shampoo I use. I think it has caffeine in it. I get it from Amazon, and I buy a lot of it at the same time. The Post is owned by Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon. I was interested in the story because it's always been a question I've had, just looking at grocery store aisles in the shampoo section. Can this thing really do everything it's saying? Uh, especially once you start getting the three and one, four and one, five and one, it just it it goes on and on. From all of the experts I've spoke to, shorter your hair, the more likely that all-in-one shampoo is perfectly fine to use. All-in-one shampoo has less conditioner than two separate products. Conditioner is what makes your hair more manageable, easier to comb. It feels nice after the shower. You don't need as much conditioner when you have shorter hair. Your hair doesn't have as much damage. It is also just smaller. <laughs> and and when you have longer hair, there's everything we do to our hair. We curl it. We iron it. We change its color. And when you're doing all of those things, you're you're damaging your hair follicles. Conditioner helps manage that damage. The meme that exists online making fun of men for using all-in-one products. It's a way to laugh at an apathetic lifestyle, but there's also a larger conversation here about the gender divide between what men are marketed and what women are marketed. Guys tend to have shorter hair, so that's why you see this trend where for men, all-in-one shampoo seems perfectly fine, but for a woman with longer hair, it might be completely incomprehensible. For men, it's one product in a plastic bottle. For women, it might be half a dozen. And so I think whenever you see these tweets or or posts online, there's always an undercurrent of what's being offered to men as ease and accessibility is not being offered to women. Since I've written this article, a lot of people have asked me about my hair routine, which has been a little unnerving. It's just, I've now now entered the fray instead of... (laughs) I didn't know it was going to spark this many conversations about what shampoo I have. But here we are. Teddy Aminabar is an audience editor at The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more of The Post's 2020 coverage, check out our Election 2020 podcast feed. There are stories from Post Reports and The Post's other politics podcasts, all aggregated in one place. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.